Okay, um, we're going to do a recap each week uh, because we're talking about found foundations and that necessitates a remembrance. We have to be able to go back and remember these things. If they are foundations, we should be able to recall these things at any point and be able to, to talk about them. And so week one, we talked about Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Uh, he is the, the starting place for everything, the one who has placed the everlasting kingdom in your hands. Everybody remember that? Yes, thanks. Good. Appreciate your uh, participation this morning. Week two, we uh, talked about camp life in the wilderness. We focused on the rebellions recorded in the book of Numbers and how these rebellions hold up a mirror for us in our own rebellions. And ultimately, though, coming to, to see that it is an imperative for us to remember uh, what God has done for us who has who he has shown up for us as, and, and to stay focused on uh, the mission he has given us, and, and also, uh, of course, be reliant on God for everything. And last week, uh, week three in the foundation series, we looked at the tabernacle. God wanted to dwell with His people, so so He made a way for that to be a reality through the tabernacle. And and we also discussed how. That was just the beginning, and that God, through Jesus, made way for us to be the dwelling place uh, of for God's Spirit. Uh, through belief in Jesus, we become the tabernacle, the dwelling place of the Spirit of the Most High. And so this week, we're going to talk about priestly anointing. And, and this will be focusing uh, uh, particularly on... Um, on, on the priestly anointed in the Old Testament and then following through to Jesus as the high priest. So foundationally, we need to be able to see and understand the priesthood, uh, as well as see what it meant to the people in ancient Israel wandering through the desert, uh, what it meant to the first century Jew, and what it means uh, for us after the crucifixion of Jesus. As members of the royal priesthood, uh, which as believers you are a member of, uh, we're meant to to be regarded in this way, and that is fit for sacred space. And I, I talked about that this last Monday morning, if you want to, to hear more about being fit for sacred space. So my hope for today is to have you walk away convinced of your inclusion into the royal priesthood, as well as uh, a willingness to seek wisdom, that's capital W, wisdom, Holy Spirit, for the actions to take in carrying out the responsibilities of the royal priesthood. Before we get to, excuse me, before we get to uh, that and get started on, on the royal priesthood, I want us to quickly take a look at the order of Melchizedek that's referenced in some key scriptures uh, that, that we're going to look at today and that you'll, you'll read it when you go through uh, more of, of scripture this week in doing your research on this. So some of these names are hard from this story. <clears throat> Excuse me. Shador Lumer. Wow, that one's a hard one. I even looked it up and listened to how it said, and I still can't do it. The king of Elam, in conjunction with uh, uh, three other Mesopotamian kings, uh, they raided a group of five kings near the shores of the Dead Sea. And in the ensuing massacre and rout by, by these Mesopotamian kings, uh, Abraham's nephew Lot, his family, all their possessions were all, uh, all captured. 
And then Abraham led an attacking force in pursuit of Lot's captors, uh, achieved victory, retrieved the plunder, and secured the release of, of Lot and his family. And I, I want to read through some of this. So uh, go ahead and turn in, in your Bibles to Genesis 14. We'll start in verse 13. Genesis 14, 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led a force, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He then divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and all brought back his kinsmen lot with his possessions, and the women and the people. So Abram took his 318 men, went in pursuit. Don't know how long that took. It would have taken some time. But then it went through the night to come after them. So, so this is a long pursuit. So he divides his forces up at night, then attacks them the next day, and continues to pursue them beyond that. And so this is obviously a well-trained force uh, that Abram had with him to be able to, to maintain this kind of, uh, of stamina and, and go after them and, and take back everything that was taken uh, to include Lot and his family. Uh, but upon his return, you know, Abraham was greeted not only by the grateful kings, but also by Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And, and Melchizedek gave Abram bread and wine along with his blessing as priest of the Most High God. And so if we continue in Genesis 14, verse 17, it says, After his return from the defeat of that king and the kings who were with him, I'm not even going to try again. Uh, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who, was the, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let an Ur, Eskel, and the Mamre take their share. So I think it's very interesting that um, Melchizedek gave him bread and wine. And that is, is what we use to remember Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So Melchizedek, he, he correctly viewed Abraham as worshiping the same God and praised God for the victory that he gave Abraham. And Abraham identified himself in, with the worship of the one true God represented 
by Melchizedek in, in that he received his gifts and blessings and, and gave him a tenth of everything. And, and he recognized Melchizedek's higher spiritual rank as a, a patriarchal uh, priest, which we'll talk more about in, in a little bit. But in contrast, Abraham, he, he distanced himself and, and disassociated himself with the Canaanite uh, worship of many gods uh, by declining gifts from the king of Sodom. Right, I'll jump over to uh, Psalm 110 now. 110. Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord send, sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your, your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So in this messianic psalm, David, he, he envisioned one greater than himself when he called Lord. Thus, the, the, the perfect messianic king was, was not uh, an idolization of, of a present ruler, uh, but someone to come. Someone that, that he knew was, was off in the distance. Also, he was, he was not, uh, merely a man, but, but more than this. The Messiah would be the, the Son of God and the Son of David. In verse four, address that, uh, to the Messiah. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the significance of this statement is really left to, to be explored in the book of Hebrews. And it's, it's also interesting to speculate whether Melchizedek's knowledge of the true God, because we don't have any of his background, if his knowledge of the true God was received by tradition uh, that was passed down from the ages closer to the flood, or whether, you know, like Abraham, he'd been uh, uprooted from from his paganism uh, into belief and worship of one God, of the true God, uh, by some direct divine revelation. It's at least clear from Hebrews 7.3 that uh, his priesthood uh, was was isolated and not received through a priestly pedigree, which we will talk more about uh, what that looked like here in a little bit. But I wanted you to have this background to be able to reference back to when you see this in the letter to the Hebrews, because you will see a lot about the order of Melchizedek in there. Uh, the fine point, though, is looking at it's that the priestly order of Melchizedek is is a mystery, uh, yet we can clearly see where it's pointing to or who it's pointing to. Okay, uh, I want to I want to quickly look at some historical stuff as it relates to the priestly garments and the anointing. And you don't have to go there, but you can write down Exodus 28. That's where you can reference. And if you want to read about the priestly garments in detail, you can do that. And we'll, we do have a picture that we'll put up here for you. It's kind of hard to read what's on there. Jordan, you can go ahead and put up the next one there. 
I know that's hard to read. You can't read it from down here. But I'll give you the highlights of it. So the first thing uh, that's talked about is the ephod. This was that outer garment that covered the priest's upper body. And it had two parts, a front and a back. And they were fastened on uh, the two shoulder straps with braided cords. And that was, uh, those braided cords were uh, gold chain. And uh, it, there was also mounted onyx stones on each side that uh, held the body with uh, the uh, the belt and the end of the waist. So uh, the names of the 12 tribes were also on these onyx stones that were on the shoulder straps. And uh, that was that was so when Aaron entered the tabernacle, he would bear the names of uh, Israel's tribes on uh, his shoulders before God. Then there was the breast piece. This was uh, what's in the center that you could see there. It's... Uh, it was made as the same cloth as the ephod and was uh, basically nine inch square. And it had 12 precious stones uh, in gold settings and they were mounted in, in four rows of three. And each one of those was engraved uh, the name of the tribes of Israel. And that breast piece was attached over the ephod with, with four golden chains. The two at the top connected to the shoulders, the two at the bottom connected to the, the belt. Then there was the robe, which was under the ephod, and this was, uh, uh, the high priest was to wear a blue sleeveless robe that hung below his knees and was reinforced at the collar. It was uh, seamless, and at the bottom, either, uh, it's kind of unclear whether it was hanging or whether it was into the hem, uh, pomegranates, as well as golden bells that would be on the hem. And the bells, those would allow the people to, to hear the high priest as he ministered in the holy place and was going about his business. And it assured the people of, of God's mercy in allowing a priest to minister on their behalf. Because only a priest uh, uh, properly attired could, could enter the holy place. And disregarding these instructions would result in, in death. They also had a, uh, a turban that he would wear. And it was made of, of linen. And the, the biggest feature of the turban was the uh, plate of gold that was in the front. And it was engraved with the words, holy to the Lord. And this expression uh, of Israel's need for purity before God was attached to the front of the turban with a blue cord. And that, that phrase, holy to the Lord, is, is something that was very significant as it related to all of these garments. He also had on a tunic, which was uh, just the long white coat made of linen that he wore beneath the uh, the robe and the ephod. And then he had a, obviously a sash, which was uh, a wide belt around his waist. And uh, I'll on that. So, what was the purpose of these garments? And, and the very specific instructions that are detailed in Exodus 28, uh, it, it was adding dignity and, and honor to the priests and it would increase the people's appreciation uh, for them and for God. And when they were fully attired, they were they were also consecrated or anointed. And so the anointing. Why why did they have a priestly anointing? What was the priestly anointing for? It was it was to have a people that were holy to the Lord, just like what was written on the front of the turban. Right, the role of the priesthood. Uh, it could most 
clearly be seen in the context of Israelites' religion as a whole. And, and we'll talk about that word religion in a minute. At the heart of, of the religion was a relationship with God. To be an Israelite or a Jew was to know and maintain continuous relationship with the living God. This relationship found its, its outward expression in, in a variety of contexts. Uh, you can look at the covenant, the temple, uh, worship, uh, basically every facet of, of their daily life. And so thus religion, it, it understood as a relationship, it had two perspectives, uh, the relationship with God and that with uh, fellow human beings. It had both a, a personal and, and communal dimension to it. So the priests, they were, they were guardians of this. They were uh, servants of this life of relationship. And, and that was the, the heart of Old Testament religion. All their functions can be best understood within the context of a relationship between God and Israel. So the priests, they were, they were servants of God and from a different perspective, servants of the covenant. Both the, the human and divine aspects uh, of their servants uh, can be seen in the covenant context. So as servants uh, of God, they, they represented God's principal purpose uh, in the world, and that's the, the well-being of his chosen people. The people would only uh, experience that well-being if their relationship with God was maintained. They had to have that maintained. As servants of Israel, the priests, they, they undertook uh, specific responsibilities of leadership uh, with respect to what is most uh, central in human life, and that's the, the worshipful life uh, of relationship to God. That was the, the primary responsibility that they had. So it's clear the priests possessed uh, uh, the role of mediation between God and Israel. In, in significant ways, they represented each member of the covenant uh, before the other member. So the need uh, for a mediator was was somewhat practical. Uh, in the days of, of the patriarchs and family religion, uh, there had been no formal priesthood because uh, the family unit was small. Israel, though, this was an entire nation. We're looking at a couple of million people, uh, and they were bound to God in covenant. And so the, the existence of priests recognized the human need for uh, so large a community to uh, set aside a group of people whose permanent task was to watch over and care for the relationship uh, between the people and with God. So the need for medi mediation, uh, however, was it was also based on the understanding uh, of the nature of God. Although God was father, he was also an awesome and holy being. And his holiness was such that uh, he would, he could not lightly be approached and just not by any, any ordinary, any ordinary person. So the priest assumed this task of approaching God on behalf of the people as a whole. The existence of the priesthood, it, it really provides a, a fundamental insight into the nature of religion and, and religion again being the relationship with the living God. Uh, human beings are, are aware of a gap or a sense of distance uh, between themselves and God. 
don't try and hang me on this. Go with me for a minute, all right? It seems almost presumptuous for, for simple man to attempt to, to bridge the gap uh, in his own right. Now, again, you have to, you have to set aside your filter of, of what you have through history and commentaries and all the teachings you've heard. Put yourself in the mind of an ancient Israelite here, standing out in the wilderness and the priesthood is being introduced. For the first time, we're having priests have this, that, that clothing that we looked at put on. The first high priest is about to be anointed. So you have to understand this is the concept we're talking about here when we're talking about this gap. So it seems presumptuous at this point for, for a simple man to attempt to do this on his own. But a priest could take steps to bridge that gap and not because they were innately better uh, than other people, but precisely because that was the task God had given them. So in his mercy, he had appointed them. So from an Old Testament perspective, the existence of a priesthood is, is not evidence of, of some genius in the founders of Israelite re religion. Rather, it's, it's evidence of the mercy of God toward his people. There's one other uh, further dimension to the priesthood in the Old Testament, and, and uh, that's the role of the priest as servants of Israel was parallel to the role Israel had as servants to the nations. God addressed uh, to Israel some words of, of remarkable privilege, and it really was a privilege, uh, in the formation of the Sinai Covenant. And, and you don't have to turn there, but you can write this down. Exodus 19.6. It says, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So just as the Israelites had had the need for uh, a priest to represent them before God, the nations of the world required a priest to represent them as well. So the responsibilities of the priests, their, their duties uh, in general fell into three basic areas. The first being they were responsible uh, in conjunction with the high priest for declaring God's will to the people. Uh, second, they had the uh, responsibilities in religious education. So they were to, to teach Israel, the entire nation, God's ordinances and law. And third, uh, they were to be servants of the tabernacle, like we talked about last week, participating in Israel's sacrifices and their worship. And there were a number of other duties uh, which would have fallen to them. And uh, in the, the law of Deuteronomy, it specifies a number of, of the duties which may have fallen upon the priests. And when it lists them out, it, it talks about priests and Levites. Because not all of, uh, when we're talking about the priests, we're talking about Aaron and his sons. And then there was the rest of the tribe of Levi who would take on a lot of these other responsibilities. And some of the duties that, that are talked about there in Deuteronomy I include participation in activity uh, of the law courts as judges, and this may have been uh, as a special reference to religious crimes, uh, taking care of the book of the law. They would control the lives and the health of lepers and also uh, participating directly in the conduct of covenant renewal ceremonies. Let's look real quick at, at the high priest. 
So the high priest duties were, were similar in, in principle to those of other priests, uh, but they had certain exclusive responsibilities. Uh, to some extent, his duties were administrative, uh, pertaining to all the priests uh, of whom he had charge, uh, but his position was was far more weighty than that of just simply an administrator. Uh, just just as all the priests were the, the servants and guardians of the covenant, uh, the high priest, he was the chief servant and chief guardian. So the, the real weight and responsibility of everything fell on to the high priest. In in his hands, it, it rested the, the, the spiritual responsibility uh, for the entire people of God. And, and therein was the true honor and, and gravity of his position. The this, this spiritual seniority of the high priest is really seen most clearly in, in certain tasks he undertook within uh, Israel's life of worship. And, and the clearest example of this can be seen in the annual observation of the Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur, and that's tomorrow. So on that day alone, uh, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and, and standing before the mercy seat. Anybody remembers what the mercy seat is, right? Standing before the mercy seat, he sought God's forgiveness and mercy for the whole uh, nation of Israel. And it's in that ceremony that Israel's covenant faith is seen most clearly uh, and, and where their religion was uh, one of relationship with the holy God and and human evil disrupted that relationship. This was where they would atone for that. So while all worship and sacrifices throughout the year uh, were concerned with the continuation of relationship, the Day of Atonement was was the day of the year which which attention of all the people uh, focused very very clearly upon the meaning of their existence in that relationship. Life really, for them, only held meaning if the relationship with God could be maintained. There was, there was a clear sense of, of what relationship with God meant for them. And so the high priest, he had the great honor and heavy burden of seeking God's mercy for all of Israel. How has that changed today? I wanted to at least address that question right now. We're going to get into it later, but I know that's that's the obvious question that's probably floating around in everyone's mind is how has that changed? And we're going to get to that in a minute. So consecration of the priests. So we're, we're going to talk about what that went through. Exodus 29 is where this is, is laid out in detail. So if you want to go look at that later, you can. We're going to hit the highlights here. And so in Exodus 29, God told Moses to, to get hold of a young bull, two rams, uh, bread, cakes, wafers, and then he was to have Aaron and his sons meet him at the tabernacle. And the first thing they did was a ceremonial washing, and uh, Moses did that. And then he was Moses was commanded to put the, the priestly garments onto Aaron. So those things we just looked at, he was dressing Aaron in those things. And then Aaron was to be anointed with oil on his head. And that symbolized his appointment by God for special service. And the sons of Aaron were not uh, anointed with oil, but they were dressed in, in priestly uh, garments. Uh, and those also included tunics, headbands, and, and sashes, but did not look the same as what we looked at for the high priest. So after Aaron and his, and his sons were consecrated, there were uh, a variety of sacrifices that were made. 
uh, using those things we just talked about. And, and each one of those three animals, uh, their sacrifice was done a little bit different. Uh, the bull was sacrificed as a sin offering and uh, placing one's hands on, on the animal's head signified identification. So Aaron and his sons would place their hands on uh, the head of the bull and the priest identified with the animal who was going to die in their place. So in this way, the priest acknowledged their own uh, sinfulness and need for the blood cleansing. And some of the blood of the bull was placed on the, the horns of the uh, altar. Uh, it, if you remember, that was the altar that was outside of the tabernacle in the courtyard we looked at last week. And then uh, some was poured on, on the, the base of the altar. And its organs uh, were to be burned on the altar, and then the rest of the animal was taken outside of the camp and burned there. And the second sacrifice was uh, one of two rams, and that was to be burnt offering. Uh, unlike the sacrifices, uh, that were consumed by the worshiper and the priest, uh, the burnt offering was to be entirely consumed on the altar. And then that ram's blood was sprinkled on all the sides of the altar, and uh, the ram was cut into pieces and washed. So that third animal, that, that other ram, uh, its blood was placed on the, the right ears, right thumb, and right big toe of Aaron and his sons. And this was signifying that they were cleansed and dedicated to God. The blood on the ear, it, it may have symbolized uh, dedication to, to hearing God's word. Blood on the thumb may have pictured holiness and doing God's work. And blood on the toe may have spoken of, of walking carefully in the service of God. The rest of the blood of that ram was uh, sprinkled on the altar, uh, on the sides of the altar, and on the priest's garments as well. And then some of the second ram's organs, a loaf of bread, a cake, and a wafer were to be given to Aaron and his sons as a wave offering to the Lord. And a wave offering was not done uh, left to right. It was done back and forth at the altar uh, and the priest, and it was symbolized as an offering to God. Uh, then those items were burned on the altar also. Uh, the breast of that ram was uh, to be a wave offering eaten by Aaron and his sons. And uh, when someone brought a fellowship offering, the animal's breasts and thigh were also to be eaten by the priests. So all of this is, is detailed out in Exodus 29, if you want to go read that. So what was the purpose of the consecration? Uh, it really comes down to the separation of the priest to be set apart from, from everyday things for the exclusive dedication of holy service to God. That was the purpose of this. And so when we, I started thinking about the, the term royal priesthood, and that's where we are ultimately going with this this morning. And what I said at the beginning, I want you to be convinced of your inclusion as a member of the royal priesthood. And so I started thinking about what, what is the difference between a, a priestly anointing and then a kingly anointing? which is royalty and priesthood combined. And so in 1 Peter 2.9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So royalty and priesthood combined. Uh, the difference uh, between a priestly and royalty anointing primarily pertains uh, to the roles and functions of, of individuals who are anointed 
for these uh, distinct purposes. Uh, we went through the priestly anointing and, and, and talked about that. You know, that was used to consecrate individuals for specific, uh, uh, to be specifically set apart for service to God. And the royal anointing was used to consecrate uh, kings and leaders uh, for their roles of governance and authority over uh, a kingdom and people. So it symbolized their appointment by God to rule. So how does the consecration point forward? I think that's another important thing to start looking at. How does this point us further down the road? These anointings uh, or consecrations, uh, they point forward to, to who is going to fulfill these roles. To really get a hold of the answer, you have to look at Jesus as both the high priest and the king of kings. And today we're focusing on Jesus as the high priest. So changes from the old priestly order to the new. Uh, you got to stay with me for a second here. Uh, I got into a, a little bit of a nerdy zone when it comes to looking at some of the history of this. So, so bear with me. Some of the, uh, the Old Testament theology of priesthood uh, continues into the time of the church. So the earliest uh, Jewish Christians, they didn't automatically just renounce their ties with the worship at the Jerusalem temple. So in a sense, they did continue to worship uh, through the mediation of temple priesthood. And and though the destruction of the temple in AD 70, it did bring it into that. But that continued on even after Jesus had, had been to the cross. It's in reality, however, their understanding of the priesthood had undergone a radical change through the illumination of the gospel, right? So when we start looking at the ancient Israelites and how they were viewing the priesthood because it was being introduced to them, now we have hundreds of years of that. And now all of a sudden it is radically shifting because now everyone becomes a member of that royal priesthood. And so that's a real shift that they're having to make. Central to the, the proclamation of the gospel was uh, that God had provided a mediator in the person of Jesus Christ. What had formerly been undertaken in, in very limited fashion by the priests and by the Levites uh, and, and done so on a continuing basis, now it, it was fully achieved in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, and this is now on a permanent basis. And although the, the theme of mediator, of the mediator role of Jesus uh, penetrates that entire gospel, it's given its fullest expression, again, in Hebrews. That's where you get to see it really drawn out. In that letter, uh, it's elaborated upon the, the whole tradition of, of priests to demonstrate the fulfillment and, and really the consummation of the gospel. Uh, the focal point, though, is the, high, uh, is the office of the high priest. And Jesus is, is the, the, the full and final high priest. And, and he is the high priest of the new covenant who, who achieved that mediation with God, uh, which, which used to be sought annually, just annually on that one day on the day of atonement. Uh, you can write this down. You don't need to turn there. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
So Jesus wasn't a, a, a high priest in the tradition of Aaron, uh, which would have identified him with the old covenant. One thing to understand is that high priests could only be fulfilled by one of the sons of Aaron. So that it had to have continued on down through his line, and it did so for quite some time. And then there were some changes made if you want to go look at the history. Uh, so Jesus was not a high priest in the tradition of Aaron where it came down through that bloodline. That would have identified him with the old covenant. Jesus was designated by God after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6.20, it says where Jesus has gone as a, as a forerunner, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I referenced earlier Hebrews 7.3 that says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So when you look at Melchizedek, we have, there's no background on him. There's no, we don't know who his father is. We don't know who his mother is. We don't know his genealogy. There is no reference to where he came from. But we have that example of him pointing towards Jesus, and, and that's what it's saying here. So the eternal nature of the high priesthood of Jesus eclipsed that temporary nature of the priesthood in the Old Testament. So looking at Jesus as the high priest, his, his office, um, it informs many aspects of his person and work. So as a high priest, it, Jesus mediates the new covenant in such a way that every blessing he received, he shares with his priestly people. So every blessing that he received, he shares with us. His priesthood defined uh, the nature of his death. On the cross, uh, Jesus bore in his flesh the curses of the old covenant. And as a final sacrifice, uh, his blood propitiated the wrath of God. And in his blood, he inaugurated the new covenant with better promises. Because of his perfect priesthood, Christ's atoning sacrifice is, is completely effective and particular to the people whom he represents. Us, right? While the old covenant was, was a mixed multitude, uh, uh, containing some who exercised faith and, and others who did not, everyone in the new covenant enjoys the, the priestly blessing of Christ. Jesus intercedes for all whom he atones. There's no division between the ones whom he died for and the ones who he lives to intercede for. Jesus also teaches all those who represent him as high priest. Whereas the, the Levitical priests, it was one of their responsibilities to teach the people of Israel, they failed to do that. And, and Jesus brings the good news to all his people. Like the priest who, who drove everything unclean uh, from God's presence, uh, when Jesus returns, he will perfectly cleanse heaven and earth. And we are to imitate Christ in his holiness, in, in his devotion to his Father's house, which we have talked about so often, and in his commitment to to the word of God and doing scripture there. So again, don't get too crazy on me. Discipleship uh, to Christ, therefore, is a priestly calling. Discipleship to Christ is a, is a priestly calling. 
jump over in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Christians are a special people because God has preserved them for himself. While these descriptions of the church, they're, they're similar to those used of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, this in, in no way indicates that the church supplants Israel and, and assumes the, the national blessings uh, promised Israel. Peter used similar terms to point up similar truths. As Israel was a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so too are believers today. They are chosen, are priests, are holy, and belonging to God. God's purpose in choosing believers for himself is so that we may declare the praises of him before others, before the nations. We should live so that our, our Heavenly Father's qualities are evident in our lives. We're to serve as witnesses to the glory and grace of God. The one who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. You can write this down. You don't need to, to turn there. Colossians 1.13. It says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. If you look back at 1 Peter 2, verse 10, it says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The mention of darkness just refers to, to a time when his readers were, were pagans. They were ignorant of, of God's provision of salvation. When they were not a people, when they had not received mercy. And his wonderful light now illuminates the people of God because they have received mercy. The practice of holiness in which God's people serve as holy and royal priesthood, it, it offers offering spiritual sacrifices uh, and praising his excellence is, is the proper response to the mercy that's been received. Jesus, as the high priest, he had a much greater and more costly sacrifice to offer, and that was himself. With Christ's sacrifice done as part of his priesthood, then what is our sacrifice? Jesus went to the cross to, to be, for us, the ultimate and permanent sacrifice. And that was done to to fulfill the requirement under the old covenant and bring us into the new covenant. So what is our sacrifice? Is our sacrifice ourselves as well? With Christ's sacrifice unto our salvation and reconciliation, our sacrifice is a response and unto uh, the service of Christ as it is now he who lives through me. 
while my sacrifice of myself, it's not going to physically be on a cross. We know there is a cross to bear. Matthew 16, 24 and 25 says, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Take up the cross and follow me. That's what Jesus said. The interesting thing about taking up your cross in in the Roman world, in this era of first century Jews, hearing these words from Jesus, they would know that this was an admission of guilt. When you picked up your cross and you carried it to the place where you would be executed, that was an admittance of guilt on behalf of that person. Are we going to die on a cross? No. But to pick up our cross and follow Jesus is to be reminded of what he did for us, who he showed up as for us. We have to look at that regard for the royal priesthood. Where is our regard for God in choosing us? Where is our regard for the role of being a royal priesthood? Where is our regard to being a holy nation that is set apart? Where is our regard for one another as a people set apart for his own nation? Where is our regard for the responsibility to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light? I'm going to read 1 Peter 2.9 again. It says, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are these things so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Last week we discussed the the recurring theme of God wanting to, to dwell amongst his people. And I talked about the word intimacy. There's another recurring theme that you're going to see throughout all of these foundations, and that's the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord should really envelop us, uh, producing right regard. We talk about the fruit all the time. What's the fruit? You know, show us the fruit. We even talked on a Wednesday morning sometime back and show us the money, right? So what does the fruit of the fear of the Lord look like? It looks like regard for who God says that we are. It looks like regard for who he is showing up as for us. It looks like regard for for what, who, where, uh, he has called us to, the mission that he's given you. It looks like regard for the praise that we bring. It looks like regard for the gratitude that we speak. And, and, and it looks like regard uh, for God in the worship that we are offering. This isn't an all-encompassing list, but you, you get the idea, right? Regard 
is in response to the fear of the Lord. Christ's priesthood, it created a, a new class of royal priests. Whereas the whole nation of Israel was called a royal priesthood in Exodus 19.6, now in Christ's new covenant, the title royal priesthood is, is reapplied to the church. It's reapplied to you. Now, this means that, that all sons of glory can serve as priests. In Christ, the church becomes a royal priesthood and a holy nation. And moreover, service un, unto the Lord is considered in terms associated with the priesthood and the temple. One of those being living sacrifices, which Paul talks about in Romans 12. A drink offering out of Philippians 2. The circumcision out of Philippians 3. Living stones out of 1 Peter 2. And additionally, evangelism is presented in priestly terms in Romans 15. And the final goal of Christ's work is to make his people a kingdom of priests, which you can see in Revelations 1, and chapter 5, and chapter 20. So again, I hope you're able to, to walk away today convinced of your inclusion into the royal priesthood, as well as a, a willingness to, to seek wisdom for the actions to take in carrying out the responsibilities of the royal priesthood. You've been anointed into the royal priesthood in Christ's covenant. The Spirit of God resides in you as the holy of holies in Christ's covenant. God desires to be with us in, in oneness as we gather together in oneness. Whenever and wherever that happens to be. And God has placed his kingdom in your hands, in Christ's covenant. So after hearing all of that, how does that shape, uh, or how will that shape this week, the conversation that you have with Holy Spirit? What regard will you show for your responsibilities as a royal priest? And last week I asked you to, to talk with people Make a plan to follow up with one another and have these conversations. And again, it's the same. Talk with each other. Make a plan to follow up. Hold one another accountable to have these conversations with Holy Spirit and share what he's revealing to you. I can't stress the importance of that enough. And I hope you'll follow through with that. Are you guys loving the series? I'm learning so much. I love it. Um, I would highly suggest, recommend that you go and read through Leviticus. It is not nearly as boring as you have been told. It's fascinating to read through Leviticus. Yeah. To read through all of the sacrifices and the detail behind it is just it, it reveals god in a completely different way he's a god of order right and 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 you can begin to see all that jesus accomplished by going back and reading through that because they had a sacrifice everything 
everything, like everything. And I want us to think about this really quick because we're going to do communion. And I don't want this to be something that we do real quick just because it's getting closer to lunchtime. I want us to really like be mindful about what it is that we're doing. Paul said that, that there are a lot of sick among you because you're not partaking of the, the body and the blood of Jesus in a right manner. So the opposite would be true for us, that if we are partaking of the, the Lord's Supper in the appropriate way, that we can actually experience great healing in our bodies. So if there were, if there's a lot of sick among us because we're not doing it in an appropriate manner, then the opposite is true. If we're regarding him the same way that we were crowning him with many crowns this morning, the same way we're going to regard him as we, we partake of his body and his, his blood. And, and this was something that Jesus said to me, you know, a few weeks ago, was that, maybe it was on a live. I don't remember. I don't remember where I do things, whether it's in the middle of the week or it's here, but we're talking, oh, it was, it was online, um, talking about the drink offering. And it is the only offering that was his alone. You couldn't, you couldn't partake of anything with the drink offering. It's, it's his, his and his alone. And, and after I got done talking about that, Holy Spirit was like, Angie, do you understand the reason why you can partake of the Lord's blood and his body? And I was like, you wouldn't be asking if I did, <laughs> you know? And he's like, it's about the priesthood. It's about us being priests. So if we're going to do this in an appropriate way, we have to put the garments on, you know? We have to put the appropriate dress on. We have to see ourselves the same way. We are priests. We are priests. And the priests got to partake of the sacrifices because of who they were. They had to. This wasn't even an option. They had to. It was a part of their work. They had to partake of some of the sacrifice. And I want you to really experience this for a second. Can you put yourself in this place? This is their role as priests. They do this over and over and over again. And can you imagine understanding that this animal is taking your place? This animal is taking your place. It is dying because of what you've done. Death is the only resolve. This is their life. This is their life. Can you imagine the smell of death, the smell of blood? Have you ever been through a city that does the whole boiling blood thing? It's disgusting. That's why everybody's fighting about the slaughterhouse not being in Junction City because everybody out west is like, I don't want to smell it. It attracts flies. It's disgusting. This is their life. They are constantly being reminded of the necessity of a sacrifice. So we need to put on our priestly garments and we need to understand that we are about to partake of the final sacrifice. What Jesus did, he did once and he did it for all.
And do you know how they would sacrifice lambs? They would pull their arms, they would stretch their arms out wide to sacrifice them. The same way that Jesus did. His arms are pulled out wide. This is total submission. God in a position of total submission. And that's what we're about to partake of. I was brought up in the Catholic Church and asked John how protective they are of the elements of communion. It is the body of Christ. It is the blood of the Lamb. And you don't walk off with it. You're supposed to partake of it in front of the priest. You don't walk off with it. And there's something about the way that they celebrate. I'm not saying they do it all right. I'm just drawing your attention to how protective they are of this moment. Because it matters. But we fall into tradition in, in a lot of different areas where we forget and we don't do things in an appropriate manner. And we end up offering up strange things before the Lord that he does not want to receive. So position your heart rightly. Look at him. Look at him. Look what, what he did. This is God we're talking about. We would make a big deal about it even if it were a man, a mere human. This is, this is God we're talking about. He stepped out of his space, out of his nature, his origin, to put on flesh, to pay the final price. For us to communion with him. And I love that Vince brought up what sacrifice looks like for us. He said, pick up your cross and follow him. And as Robin was worshiping this morning, she started talking about creation. And, and spirit realms are just so, they're fascinating because immediately I was brought into a storm. And there was a storm all around. Violent kind of storm, you know, the ones that fascinate you and scare you all at the same time. And and trees were being broken by the violence of this wind. And you guys, I could hear them. I could hear. They were so glad. So glad to be wounded by the violence, the great and terrible storm of the Lord. They were delighting and the fact that they got to lay down themselves because of him. And we don't do this. We don't do this. This is creation. Creation is doing this. Creation is celebrating. Pick me! Ravage me! But not us. We shy away from it. We're like, that, that's too much. You're asking too much of me. But we're the ones made in his image. We're the ones made in the Savior's image. 
are just like him. We're made to lay our lives down. We're made to die so that we can truly live. So can we be like the trees? Ravage me. Ravage me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And so we take of the blood and we take of his body to become more like him, to remind ourselves, I am like him. I am one who dies to live. I gain everything by losing my life. So it's back there. Just asking that if you're going to do it, do it appropriately. Okay? Which means you're not going to whine about it being wine. Do it appropriately. Posture your heart appropriately. This is King Jesus. Crown him as you partake.